listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. The church is located at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. Thank you for joining us today as Dr. Pollock opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. So let's read. We're reading from the Psalm 86, and we'll read together from the verse number 1. Bow down thine ear, O Lord. Hear me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my soul, for I am holy. O thou, my God, save thy servant that trusteth in thee. Be merciful unto me, O Lord, for I cry unto thee daily. Rejoice the soul of thy servant, for unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For thou, Lord, art good, and ready to forgive, and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. Give ear, O Lord, unto my prayer, and attend to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble I will call upon thee, for thou wilt answer me. Among the gods there is none like unto thee, O Lord, neither are there any works like unto thy works. All nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, and shall glorify thy name. For thou art great, and doest wondrous things, thou art God alone. Amen. May God encourage our hearts in his word tonight. That verse number two in the prayer there, preserve my soul, immediately directs our attention to the general subject of this psalm. Once more we find the psalmist in trouble. Verse number seven, in the day of my trouble. And then down in verse number 14, O God, the proud are risen against me, and the assemblies of violent men have sought after my soul. So we find the psalmist again in a condition of trouble. Here we find, of course, David's involved in some manner of, of conflict and warfare. Again, Solomon was the man of peace. David was marked by war continually. And we don't find ourselves in that condition necessarily, but we do certainly find the trouble of spiritual warfare that threatens the soul. And in such times we pray, preserve my soul. Preserve my soul. This word preserve has various meanings in different forms. It's a very, very common verb in the Hebrew language. Translated sometimes as keep, as in to protect, to watch, the watchman, to preserve. In this sense, which of course is a sense of, of rescuing and protecting from harm. But as we'll see in the opening verses of this psalm, there are parallel prayers that come alongside this desire to be preserved. And so my suggestion to you is that thought of being preserved is a central request, but there are these other requests that come alongside, and that in itself gives us some interesting lessons. So let's begin by looking at the requests of his praying. First of all, there is that request to preserve my soul, then in verse number 2b, save thy servant. Then verse number 3, be merciful unto me. And then verse number 4, rejoice the soul of thy servant. Those are the, the four petitions that come at the front end of this psalm. Preserve. And what I said to you, this word has the sense of watching, protecting, keeping. And it's used back in uh, the Psalm 17 and the verse uh, number eight, keep me as the apple of the eye. 
Of course, the apple of the eye referring to the front of the eye that is so sensitive. You get a mosquito in your eye and you know the pain and the discomfort as it flies into your eye. And, and so it is. Our bodies are created in such a way that we are very quick to protect uh, the apple of our eye. Our eyelashes, our eyelids function so effectively to protect our eye from danger. And so when the psalmist says, keep me as the apple of the eye, he's, he's asking for rapid protection instinctive protection like that God would protect and keep him as the apple of the eye. Spurgeon says this, he feels himself unsafe except he be covered by the divine protection. How important that is. We all, we all should be aware of that. We feel ourselves unsafe except for the covering of divine protection. And then he prays in the second place, save thy servant that trusteth in thee. Save. I think what is likely in view here is particularly his physical life. We, we, we use the term save, of course, in terms of salvation. But in the context of the Psalms, so often the psalmist is praying that his life would be preserved. That is, as we saw in the Lord's Day past, that is obedience to the sixth commandment. We ought not to desire our life to end. It should be our prayer, Lord, keep my life. Not that we would not that we'd live indefinitely, that's not the point. But that every single day is a gift from God in the will of God. And as every day is a gift from God, so we should pray for life, that we would live for God's glory, for God's service in a fallen world. And so it is right and proper to pray, to pray for salvation. But if I can go beyond the sense of praying for the saving of his life, I think the intent of the prayer is that his enemies would not see their desires come to fruition. The enemies want his life. They want to see him dead. And so we can take that. We can think of our enemies, Satan and his forces. He seeks to devour. And so if we bring this forward into the new covenant, we're not so much praying for protection against physical enemies. That may be important going forward at some point. But right now we're praying that Satan would not have his end, his will accomplished in our lives. That he'd be resisted from his purposes, that we'd be kept in the power of God. See if... Then there's a prayer, very simply, have mercy unto me, O Lord. This recognition that anything that comes from God is an act of God's mercy, it's undeserved. And then the fourth thing is this matter of rejoicing the soul. Rejoice the soul of my servant, verse number four. So when you bring all of this together, the psalmist is praying that he would be delivered in or out of his troubles. And he knows that such would be an act of mercy. And such mercy will bring great joy to his soul. So I think this is, this is one prayer combined, but there are different aspects of the petition. And so before I move on, let me just make a couple of comments by way of application. First of all, our need properly ought to motivate our prayer. A recognition of our need before God is a valid and a strong motivation to us coming before God in prayer. Look at verse 1 again. Bow down thine ear, O Lord, hear me, for I am poor and needy. There's a recognition here of his, of his need. Now, when we think of our need as the children of God, there, there are different things that might happen in our experience we may be sensible of our need. We may be aware of our need. And it may lead to despair and therefore prayerlessness. 
That's a real danger. At other times, we are insensible, unaware of our need. And again, we find ourselves dull in prayer then. We're prayerless in either way. And so what we ought to, what we ought to be very careful about is to make a wise and a prudent calculation of our need before God. Because we're always and continually in need before God. There's not a time, not a second of our lives that we're not needy before God. But that need must never lead to despair, but it must stimulate and motivate prayer. Being unmindful of our weakness leads to the danger of prayer that is absent or apathetic. And so when you see the psalm and you see the burdening, I am poor and needy. And we are every bit as needy as David was. And so our need ought to motivate prayer. And secondly, we should note also, uh, by way of application here, that healthy religion in our soul involves joy. And so I want you to notice this. Here you have these petitions all coming together. Preserve me, save me, be merciful, and then rejoice the soul of thy servant. This is a part of a prayer for, for healthy spiritual life. When we lack joy, it is an indicator of spiritual ill health and potential spiritual danger. Remember last time we saw in the Psalm 51, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. The believer knowing joy is an indicator of spiritual health and well-being. And so in, in praying for his soul to be preserved, he is conscious that a mark of that preservation is the joy that he would have in the Lord. Yesterday's uh, Let the Bible Speak devotional online was on Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Let me read to you just some sections out of that devotional. Paul was growing old. The sufferings he had experienced had certainly taken their toll. Yet despite the catalogue of afflictions he had endured while preaching the gospel of Christ, he had not lost his sense of the vibrancy of life. The words joy and rejoice occur 16 times in this epistle, Philippians, of course. These words express triumph in the face of disappointments and hardships of the Christian life. The Christian can rejoice at all times and under all circumstances because the source of his joy is the Lord. Thus rejoicing like joy is supernatural. It issues from the very nature of God and is intended to well up within those in whom God's Spirit dwells. The unusual thing about Paul's situation was that there appeared to be no reason for him to rejoice. He was a Roman prisoner awaiting trial. He might be acquitted or he might be beheaded. Yet in spite of his danger and discomfort, Paul overflowed with joy. He could testify, I rejoice in the Lord greatly. All our joys must terminate in God, and all our thoughts of God must be delightful thoughts. The psalmist says, delight thyself also in the Lord. And so I was reading that yesterday, and knowing the psalm we were studying, I thought, well, this is very, very insightful. And particularly when you see the quotation with which the devotion closed, Anonymously, joy is the flag that is flown from the citadel of the heart when the king is in residence. I'm not sure if all your flag practices here, but if you go to Buckingham Palace 
and you go to stand at the gates of Buckingham Palace in London, and if the flag is hoisted, the Queen is in residence. The flag's down, she's not there. The flag uh, is risen when the Queen is present. And so this quotation is saying that very thing. Joy is the flag that is flown from our hearts when the King is in residence. And so there is joy in the Lord when we are close to the Lord. And when you're praying to be preserved, there is this confrontation of spiritual danger. The recognition being, I don't want to be far off from the Lord. I want the Lord near right now that I would know spiritual joy. So please, if you find yourself in a time when there's a complete absence of spiritual joy, recognize you're in spiritual peril. There are times when our experience of joy will vary. We have to be commanded, rejoice in the Lord always. There's a need for this command because it's, it doesn't always appear. There's times we've got, to, we've got to think through things. We've got to meditate upon the Word and we've got, to, we've got to get to the Lord. But the absence of joy is always a bad sign in our Christian life. We ought to pursue joy with a determination of soul. And when we're in danger, joy is threatened. And yet joy is known when we know the Lord is for us and when the Lord is with us. So all I want you to do at this point is to recognize this situation. That as he's praying for the need for preservation, so he accompanies with that prayer the desire for rejoicing and joy. And so may God help us to be perceptive regarding your own spiritual condition, that we would see, well, if there's an absence of joy, what is the cause of that? And that we would quickly run to Christ and that we'd run to the gospel truth, and that we rejoice in the Lord always. And so there's the request of his praying in the context of being preserved. There are all these other accompanying requests. And then secondly, note the reasoning in his praying. And there's two headings tonight, the requests and then the reasoning. This prayer is a little unique and certainly profound in light of the reasoning of the psalmist. Look at the verses again. And note how often the word for occurs. Bow down thine ear, O Lord. Hear me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my soul, for I am holy. Verse 3. Be merciful unto me, for I cry unto thee daily. Rejoice the soul of thy servant, for unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For thy Lord art good. You see how often that occurs? The petitions are followed up with a, a reason. There's reasoning in his praying. Each verse is accompanied with a sense of, of four, four, four. Here's the reason. This is, this is mental application in prayer. This is thoughtful praying, careful praying. We all pray in cliches. It's, it's impossible, almost impossible not to. We, we pray the same sorts of prayers. We have those words that we've learned and they're they're not sinful. They're precious words. They're not vain, empty words. They're words that we hold very, very dear, and we, we pray them. But there is a danger. And the danger is we shut off our minds and prayers, and we, we simply echo those words that we've used time and time again. Spiritual praying has this aspect of mental application, of careful thoughtfulness in the time of prayer. And so in so doing, there is this holy argumentation have you ever tried to pray that way? I just suggest you do something in the next few days when you're praying at home. Pray a petition and follow the petition up with a reason. So, Lord, bless my wife. 
And you think of a reason, well, because she lives with me, or whatever it might be. There's, a, there's, a, there's an argumentation following up. She, she, she's got a battle with this. Or pray for my children, for they are in need of God's grace. Or pray for the blessing of the gospel, because the word of God will not return unto him void. So there's a different way you can do this, as in needs, or as in arguing the very presence and the purposes of God. Uh, it's, a very, it's a challenging exercise because sometimes we just, we just pray we ask petitions but here you see in the psalmist the importance of holy argumentation in the place of prayer now when you look at this particular prayer in these opening verses you'll see that there are some arguments that are centered upon the one doing the praying okay so some of them they center upon the petitioner the one who's praying and the arguments center upon him other times, the arguments arise in light of the one being prayed to, namely the Lord. So let's look at these uh, two concepts. First of all, arguments that center upon the one praying. So verse number, uh, verse number two, preserve my soul, for I am holy. And then you've got verse number uh, 2b, see of thy servant that trusteth in thee. And then verse 3, be merciful, for I cry unto thee. You see, these are, these, are, these are reasons that are centering upon the petitioner. First of all then, for I am holy. For I am holy. Now, I don't know what you immediately think of when you read those words in the light of the psalm. For I am holy, do you believe the psalm is referring to his conduct? He's a man marked by holiness. Well, let me give you some of the thoughts of Spurgeon again on this from the treasury of David. He gives three possible ways in which this term, I am holy, could be understood. He says, I am set apart for holy uses. Therefore, do not let thine enemies commit a sacrilege by injuring or defiling me. So the idea of being set apart, holy. The other one, I am clear of the crimes laid to my charge. In that sense, innocent. Therefore, do not allow me to suffer from unjust charges. Thirdly, I am inoffensive, meek, and gentle towards others. Spurgeon says this, All of these renderings may explain the text. Perhaps all together will explain it best. So, it may well be the case that the psalmist is referring to his uprightness in the things of God. He does that elsewhere. For I am righteous, he says elsewhere. And it's not wrong. It's not wrong for good men to plead their innocence as a reason for escaping perhaps sins against them. You say, Lord, I, this is unjust. I'm guilty. I'm, un, I'm not guilty of this particular situation. I'm a righteous person. That's not wrong. All right. I have my suspicions that Mr. Spurgeon leant very heavily on Mr. Gill in the comments he makes on this particular verse. Gill gives the same three possibilities, although in a different order, and the language is very, very similar. But Gill says this as his third. So Spurgeon's first one is, I am set apart for holy uses. And Gill's third one is this, or he was a sanctified person, and God had begun his work of grace in him. He therefore entreats the Lord, would preserve him and perfect his own work in him. And this, uh, I'm going to put my own view across, this is, I believe, what the psalmist is referring to, that he is set apart for the Lord. He is holy in that sense. 
He doesn't say, for I am righteous. He used this sense of being holy. And in the context of the ceremonial law, to be holy referred to being set apart unto God for God's use as belonging to God. Whether it be the tabernacle structures or the priests themselves or the king. The king is taken out of men, set apart for God for holy use. That's a vital argument, isn't it? When we come to praying for God to preserve us. When we think of being preserved from our spiritual enemies, we're going before God and saying, Lord, I belong to you. I am yours. You've bought me the price, the price of the blood of your own dear son. Therefore, keep me. Therefore, preserve me. See, when you're poor and needy, that does not mean you're despised of the Lord. Here's someone who's poor and needy and holy in the same breath. I'm poor and needy. Preserve my soul, for I'm holy. In the very same time, he is poor and needy, yet he's still holy. He belongs to the Lord. Our troubles, praise God, that does not mean that we're despised of God's. Our troubles can be deep, they can be serious, and yet we can still be holy unto the Lord because of Christ's work for us. We have to grasp who we are. We have to battle our doubts. We've got to get before God and say, I am holy. Why am I holy? Not because of myself, but because of the blood of Christ and the grace of God. So he says, for I am holy. And the second thing he says, for I trust. For I trust. Save thy servant that trusteth in thee. To trust is to believe God's promise. And if we trust in the Lord, what we're saying is, Lord, I hold you to be faithful to your promises. So it's not so much, again, asking for God to bless us out of our merits. Look, I, I trust you, therefore bless me. That's not the point. I trust you. I'm holding on that you will be faithful. And we'll come to that uh, in a moment or two. And then thirdly, for I pray unto thee. So I am holy, I trust, and I pray. Verses 3, for I cry unto thee daily. And then verse 4, for unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. We think about how we argue the fact that we're praying before God. Well, we're praying because we trust. We trust because we believe God is faithful. We've said that already. But in our prayers, we're also recognizing that we're going to a God who is able. I often think of Hebrews, that if we're going to please God in prayer, we must believe that he is. And that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And so as we, as we pray, we're revealing that. We're showing that to be true. Well, praise God, he hears our prayers. So those are the arguments centered upon the one praying. And then secondly, note very briefly, the arguments are rising from the one being prayed to. Verse 5, For thou, Lord, art good, and ready to forgive, and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. Here are the strongest arguments of all we get before God, not about ourselves, but upon the Lord himself. Consider the character of God. Verse number 5, For thou, Lord, art good, and ready to forgive. Why does God work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose? Why does God work all those things together for our good? Well, many reasons, but in part because he is good. He is good, kind and gracious. He's ready to forgive. And the connection of thought is there. He is plenteous in mercy 
unto those whom he's forgiven. His intrinsic goodness means he is a forgiving and merciful God, and he is good, ready to forgive, and will therefore be plenteous in mercy. What an argument this is. We know you're good. You've forgiven our sins, therefore preserve me. Considering the promises of God also. Here I go back to what I said regarding trusting in the Lord. To trust in the Lord is to hold on to his promises that he's faithful. Well, listen to uh, one, two, three, four, five promises just in the Psalms alone. 97 verse 10, he preserveth the souls of his saints. 116 verse 6, the Lord preserveth the simple. 145 verse 20, the Lord preserveth all them that love him. 146 verse 9, the Lord preserveth the strangers. And then one last one from 121 verse 7, the Lord shall preserve thee from all evil, he shall preserve thy soul. There's a five-fold promise to hold on to when you come to pray, verse number two, preserve my soul. So you consider the character of God, the promises of God, and finally the power of God. In verse number eight, it says, among the gods there is none like unto thee. And then verse number 10, for thou art great and doest wondrous things, thou art God alone. The power of God. You come back to God's wondrous works. This particular psalm is very significant because the psalmist refers to God's wondrous works in light of what God is yet to do. Look at verse number 9. All nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, and shall glorify thy name. For thou art great and doest wondrous things. Thou art God alone. The psalmist is looking forward to what will happen in part on Pentecost then through the book of Acts, and then through the worldwide evangelization of all the nations, all coming before God and worshiping Him. We stand upon much of that heritage, that heritage that is yet to be fulfilled in full. We can stand upon history and say, Lord, you do wondrous things. The things of redemption, we've seen your power at work. You've kept your promises and even individually, we have the assurance that being justified, we have peace with God. Or in Romans chapter 5, in the verse number 9, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. We can pray, preserve me, save me from wrath eternally because we've been justified in his blood. Lord, you do wondrous works. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania, at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. We preach Christ crucified.